Welcome to the History Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Thomason. The History Podcast is an educational podcast intended to engage student and lifelong learning in American history. Without further delay, let's get to it. Welcome to the History Podcast. Today we are going to look at the bloody summer of 1919 and how the birth of a nation released in 1915 played a major role. In the years since the movie's release, the country is going to get involved in the Great War towards the latter part. Many of you know this as World War I. Uh, men will enlist to fight either through volunteerism or the draft, which is going to be implemented. And this is a war that, that many Americans, quite frankly, weren't even sure that we should be fighting in. Black men, despite the mistreatment from virtually every angle that exists in this country, still went and fought for a country that treated them as second-class citizens, if not worse. As men began coming home from the war, the country went through an economic recession, which is pretty commonplace if you know how war works. War is good for the economy. We don't have to admit that we like it, but war is good for the economy. But typically what we see throughout history is that after war, we go through a recession. Wartime production goes down. That leads to inflation and uh, job loss as well. And this leads to workplace frustration. And workers will begin to strike across the country. This, combined with the Great Migration creating a demographic shift in the North, led to growing racial hostilities in the workplace. Today, we will discuss how white supremacy and workplace competition will lead to the bloodiest summer of the early 20th century. I would like to recommend before we begin that if you haven't listened to episode 32 on D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, that you hit pause, you go back and listen to that episode before listening to this one. I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. In April of 1919, a violent mob formed in Jenkins County, Georgia, after a black man shot and killed a white sheriff's deputy. The altercation began when the Ruffins, a black family, were on their way to church at Carswell Grove Baptist Church in Jenkins County, Georgia, when they noticed one of their friends, Edmund Scott, was sitting in the back of a police car. The Ruffins pulled their car over and the father, Joe, got out to see if he could pay his friend's bell. As he approached the officer, the officer gave him an odd look. Ruffin asked the officer how much the bell was. He was informed it was $400, and Joe Ruffin began to offer to pay for his friend Edmund Scott's bell. He was going to write a check for Edmund Scott's bell, but the police officer told him cash only. Now, you can draw conclusions as to why he wanted cash only, but we'll let you decide that. As Joe Ruffin reportedly moved to collect uh, his friend, violence erupted when W. Clifford Brown, the sheriff's deputy, pistol whipped Joe and the gun accidentally discharged. When shots were heard, Lewis Ruffin, Joe's son, and also an army veteran then came to his son's or to his dad's defense rather by shooting Brown. The second officer there on the scene fired his weapon and shot Edmund Scott. 
A white mob quickly formed in Jenkins County after they heard about the events that transpired and began terrorizing the black community. They burned Carswell Grove Baptist Church to the ground and killed two of Ruffin's sons, one of which was 13 years old. Rioters set the dead bodies on fire and then went on to burn black lodges, other black churches in the community, and cars owned by the black citizens in Jenkins County. Joe Ruffin was saved from the lynching of the white mob only because of the white county commissioner who sped him out of town and dropped him off at the nearest big city, which happened to be Augusta, where he then was placed in jail. Joe Ruffin was charged with the murder of the two white officers and survived many attempts by white mobs to try and pull him out of the cell for a lynching. Lewis Ruffin had to flee from Georgia, never seeing his family again. Now, it's important to understand that Joe Ruffin was actually a rarity in Georgia. He was a wealthy black man. And because he was a wealthy black man, Joe managed to escape a, escape a guilty verdict, likely because he had the money to pay for an attorney that could actually uh, use those resources to get him out. But because of all these legal fees that Joe accrued, he lost all of his wealth, was forced to exile Georgia. Joe never even killed the officers in the first place, but he was always going to be tagged as the person who got away with it. The sad reality is Joe didn't escape to some safe location. He, he escaped to South Carolina, which is arguably just as hostile of an area. And the other sad reality about this entire situation in Jenkins County, Georgia, is that not one white man was charged for killing Ruffin's 13-year-old boy. The arsons are the arson of the churches. The lodges, the cars, and the other black business in Jenkins County, Georgia. On Saturday, July 19th, 1919, in Washington, D.C., there was a rumor spreading throughout the city that the arrest, questioning, and release of a black man who was accused of sexually assaulting a Navy man's wife was on the loose. A white mob formed as a result and went armed with pipes and clubs throughout the southwest portion of D.C., violently beating any black man they came across. The following night, the crowds had grown exponentially larger and more intensely as law enforcement refused to step in and stop the violence. Black men began responding in defense uh, to the violence by attacking white people who were attacking their neighborhoods. And after four days of violence and absolutely zero police intervention to stop the destruction, Woodrow Wilson, then President of the United States, called in the National Guard to stop the fighting. But it wasn't until torrential uh, rainstorms hit the Capitol before the rioting actually stopped. Weather 
stopped the rioting. And as a result of the Washington, D.C. riot of 1919, nine men were killed in street fights, 30 men died from injuries, and more than 150 were severely injured. One of the most segregated and racially hostile cities in the United States actually resided in the North. In Chicago, Illinois, virtually every part of the Windy City was completely segregated, including beaches like the shores of Lake Michigan. Immigration waves and the Great Migration had led to very hostile workplaces where white Americans felt their jobs were being taken by these groups. While many Southern blacks moved from various Southern states, it was Mississippians who were especially coming to Chicago by taking the Illinois Central. They worked primarily in the stockyards, meatpacking factories, steel factories, and the railroads. African Americans who often uh, came into these jobs as scabs, which they were replacement workers for those who went on strike, that only added to the racial hostility. And on July 27, 1919, a teenager by the name of Eugene Williams was in a makeshift raft with his buddies on Lake Michigan, enjoying a summer day, doing what boys do. They have fun in the water, they're jumping off, doing tricks. And their raft began to float into the quote-unquote white-only waters, which is ridiculous in and of itself. How you even determine that is very, very arbitrary. Now, city officials say they marked it by the 26th Street. White beachgoers noticed that the black boys had drifted into the white waters and an angry white beachgoer began throwing rocks at the boys. One of the rocks struck Eugene Williams and he drowned to death. Black beachgoers ran to the police hoping to get some assistance and they got no response because they did not want to get involved. This led to black and white beachgoers fighting in extreme violence, which it, it's ends, ends up spilling into the streets of Chicago. South side white citizens began burning and looting black homes and businesses, leaving more than 1,000 black Chicagoans without a home. Chicago's mayor eventually called in the state militia, and thankfully because of a massive rainstorm, the fighting subsided. But the lasting effects left generations of black Chicagoans destitute and disenfranchised. Many of the black citizens who fought back were soldiers who had returned home from fighting in World War I for their country. In the late 1800s, Omaha, Nebraska was a booming western city that was soon to become 
number one in meat production in the United States. In the early 1900s, nearly 80% of the Omaha citizens had livestock-related jobs. These factories were primarily made up of people from European descent, and from 1910 to 1919, they participated in many labor strikes, which led to openings in the plants, forcing meatpacking plants to recruit black workers from the South as scabs. We had already seen this happen in Omaha, Nebraska, two years prior. This led to a lot of racial hostility and violence. In 1919, William Brown, a 40-year-old black man, was accused of rape of a white woman, and this led to an angry mob of 10,000 people storming the courthouse in Omaha and demanding him be, to be released to the mob. The police refused, and the mob began setting fire to the courthouse and tried to even hang the mayor. Amongst all the panic and the smoke and the fire, the police finally released Brown to the mob. It is important to know that during this same period, while they are raiding the courthouse, they're also going into the black community and burning black homes, businesses, and churches in Omaha. The white mob will lynch Will Brown, hanging him by a lamppost and shooting him over 100 times before finally burning his body. A young 14-year-old by the name of Henry Fonda witnessed this from an adjacent building. He would later say that Witnessing something so horrific shaped his professional career as an actor, and it also transformed his paradigm of the world in more ways than he could even describe. Not one single white man served a day for the lynching of Will Brown or the damage done to the city. The riots that took place in Elaine, Arkansas, will go down as the deadliest riot of 1919. In the South, slavery existed in all but name. It was sharecropping. But sharecroppers were perpetually kept in debt by the plantation owners who would doctor the books to keep the sharecropper in debt, and nobody was ever going to hold the plantation owner accountable. This debt kept sharecroppers locked into this new form of slavery, unable to pay off the falsified debt placed on their heads. In the fall of 1918, Robert Hill, a black man from Arkansas, decided to form a union for sharecroppers. Now, you have to understand, this is extremely dangerous for a black man to do, especially in the state of Arkansas. The union would become known as the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. Black World War I veterans and sharecroppers became card-carrying members of this union. And they believed that workers should have lawyers and be able to sue plantation owners for cotton that had been stolen from them and false numbers that had been put in the books. In 1919, the union will finally meet in Phillips County, Arkansas, 
And at their first meeting, they were concerned for obvious reasons that there might be trouble. So they had six black union members posted up with weapons as lookouts. A car drove by with two white men in the vehicle and they yelled out, one of the men yelled out, y'all get out of here. Shots were fired and it's unclear who fired first, but a barrage of fire followed. White mobs were formed in large numbers with newspapers reporting that black sharecroppers are going around killing white people. Posses were put together by the sheriff to track down the black sharecroppers who were involved. The white angry mobs went into black neighborhoods and shot indiscriminately at black men, women, and children, burning homes and destroying any businesses that existed. All for starting a union. Within two days, Governor Charles Bro sent 500 soldiers in to squash the alleged black uprising. You see, the media had portrayed this image that the black sharecroppers were the instigators. And it got the white mob convinced that there was going to be a black uprising. And so when the governor sends in 500 soldiers, that's what they're looking for. But when these soldiers arrive, they don't find black people killing white people. They, in fact, see only white people armed with weapons all throughout town. Black citizens were hiding in the thickets because they were scared to death. Finally, when the black citizens who were engaged in this fight with the white mob saw that the troops had arrived, they believed that they were there to save them. So they came out running. And when the soldiers saw them running at them, they began shooting at the black citizens, feeling as if they were coming after them. The exact number will never be known as to how many people died in Elaine, Arkansas, but it is estimated that roughly 237 black women, men, and children were killed in the Elaine, Arkansas riot. And there was a demand for justice, but not for the black victims. You see, there were five white men that died. So law enforcement rounded up hundreds of blacks and threw them in the local jail. But once the local jail was full, they held the rest of the detainees in a nearby schoolhouse and they tortured these detainees using formaldehyde in their nose. They whipped them, they stripped them naked and shot them and beat them into making false confessions. Robert Hill managed to escape to Kansas. However, 122 black men were indicted and not one single white man was indicted for the 237 black lives that were killed. In the end, there will be 12 men, 12 black men that will be found guilty of murder and sentenced to death 
Historically, we call these 12 men the Arkansas 12. But the Arkansas 12 were tried in front of an all-white jury, a white judge, a white prosecutor, and a white defense attorney who really had no skin in the game. There was a white gallery. There were white mob members in the courthouse armed during this trial and more white mob outside the courthouse. So obviously the Arkansas 12 were going to be found guilty in that situation and they were immediately put on death row. The NAACP is going to find out about what is going on and they're going to get involved immediately. They're going to challenge the court's decisions and they're going to lose several times. They're going to have a lot of setbacks and it almost seems hopeless. But finally, in 1923, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to hear their case in Moore v. Dempsey. And Chief Justice William Howard Taft, former president of the United States, and the rest of the justices will rule that the defendants had been denied their legal rights. This was really one of the first times where black Americans saw a victory with the courts, and it gives them hope that they can actually receive a fair trial despite color. We thank you for joining us today on the podcast. We hope that you learned something. We ask that you would subscribe to the podcast as you get notifications on any new episode that comes out. We also ask that you would give us some feedback, positive or negative. If you like the podcast, give us a five-star review. That always helps us uh, get our podcast out to a larger audience. And as always, guys, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We'll see you next time.